Hello, this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. We're Feminine Chaos. Welcome, welcome. And uh, Phoebe, what are we talking about today? Well, before we talk about anything, I was thinking I would just, through the microphone, give you a big sloppy kiss on the cheek, without you even knowing. A kiss hello? <laughs> a kiss hello. Well, you know what? It's actually, I'm I'm trying to do like a little bit at the start of our show, but meanwhile, Bizu the poodle is just without even asking me methodically licking my hand that's really funny but my cat is doing the same to me um yeah it's you know it's funny actually like when it when it comes to animals and consent like (laughs) i like the idea that somebody could just out of context be like from feminine chaos when it comes to animals and consent yes yeah someone someone is going to start a feminine chaos out of context account just for this but no like okay so here's something i've always wondered okay animals cannot (laughs) consent right um but animals will sometimes like lick or kiss you is it your responsibility to prevent the animal from doing this i mean are you supposed to swat them away like you would like a you know a child like you don't know what you're doing but that's bad for you so (laughs) so you can't have to stop you from kissing me i mean bizu is at this moment getting each of my fingertips i and i'm supposed to stop this yeah i mean i think technically it's you're assaulting her I'm going to have to say something here, which is that the word for domestic animals, right, that you keep in your home is pet, right? Right. Because you pet them. <laughs> I mean, what what are they if you don't pet them? Oh, that's true. Well, okay. So, like, is do these things have different etymology? Is pet as a noun, like, different in der- derivation from pet as a verb? And which came first? I mean, I really doubt it. I think that... I mean, a teacher's pet isn't literally pet, one hopes, but... The, <laughs> yeah, that's non-consensual. Although, yes, but <laughs> I mean, if Bizu, if if cuddling... The, so Bizu has not been groomed since the summer because she'd had to have an operation. She's doing fine now, but um, but so she's extremely fluffy. Her back feels like what I imagine it would be like to pet a raccoon. You know? <laughs> it's just like this complete, like many inch high fluff that's just like I mean if I cannot be petting her right now I don't want to be right you know like I'm sorry Bizu Bizu needs a a good pet here and she's getting one yeah I think it's you know maybe maybe the line is just slightly different you can pet your pets you just can't neck with your pets I can't say I'm keen on it you know yeah yeah no same especially this cat who is once again (laughs) rumbling in the microphone their tongues are like sandpaper i don't even want to engage with that you know i feel like i'm doing him a favor by letting him lick me (laughs) (laughs) so who is famous or was famous and was canceled over a cheek kiss Oh, um, <laughs> I was thinking, like, how can we segue into this? You know, speaking of people with sandpapery tongues, Juno Diaz. <laughs> yes. So the writer who was Me Too'd, as we have discussed um, on this here podcast, and which I sort of side note found funny when somebody was saying that, like, the white ladies of the literary world or something all like wish him ill or something and i was thinking like well we had our little little podcast where we didn't but anyway that's um, true (laughs) but yeah anyway well i guess we're not the whole literary world unto ourselves although we should be um 
So basically, he was one of these Me Too cases that came up um, on our podcast, mainly, I think, in the context of that he had (laughs) allegedly non-consensually kissed somebody, a a woman who was saying that she was just like just a young grad student of 26 or something like that. A wide-eyed 26-year-old. A wide-eyed 26-year-old. Amazing, right? Never forget that. Yeah. I mean, yes. And I think at the time we were fascinated by the notion that you could be wide-eyed, like childlike at the age of 26. Uh, 26-year-old, that's an adult. (laughs) A 26-year-old is definitely an adult. There's no such thing as statutorily raping a 26-year-old. There's a 26-year-old who has never been kissed exists, but that is notable and they might like write an essay about it. You know what I mean? But of course you say, okay, but you somebody still shouldn't like, unless they're your pet, lunge at you with their sandpapery tongue and <laughs> shove that tongue in, into your mouth. Now, did he do that? No, no. It appears that he kissed her on the cheek. And I believe possibly in the context of kiss, everybody was kissing on the cheek. It was some kind of thing where people were just kissing on the cheek which yeah, kiss, is kissing like... hello or kissing goodbye or or what have you and you know we should note that this type of cheek kissing is in fact a common form of greeting and then like saying goodbye in cultures that are not american um it's funny like in america we we shake hands hello and then we hug goodbye it's like you know in the course of getting to know somebody um even for like five minutes you've you've established that you can now like press your body against theirs yes you think about it it's a little silly on the other hand the european kissing thing it seems like too much at the outset and then not enough when you're saying goodbye Yes. So I have uh, Belgian and Montreal families. So this is something I'm very familiar with, the the cheek kissing. And on the one hand, it is a whole lot less intimate than a hug. On the other, what can happen, and this does happen, is you don't realize what side you're starting on, and you bump faces and you have accidentally mouth kissed a relative. And that happens, unfortunately, more than you might want. And you could accidentally kiss a, a, a writer in the face you, like that. You yeah. could. You could accidentally kiss a writer in the face. I mean, there's a lot of people you could kiss in the face like that, <laughs> including your in-law's elderly neighbor, which happened to me at the first Thanksgiving I ever spent with Brad's family. So. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I've given, like, various in-laws in Belgium big mouth smooches that I have not I'm quite sure I have not intended to but yes so that is where I I think the cheek kiss for me is not ideal I don't know whether it has survived COVID I have not had the good fortune to be in Europe since COVID so I don't know um whether I mean you could still cheek kiss in masks I suppose if you wanted to <laughs> it sounds a little kinky although or... I mean often like when you cheek kiss you really end up just kissing the air next to their face anyway well, that's I think more of a New York kind of cheek kiss like let's mm-hmm. do lunch mwah, mwah, style. <laughs> like that seems something different like where you don't want to mess up your lipstick so you're going to vary in a, in a very exaggerated way but we should talk yes. about our topic though which is this writer was canceled so uh Ben Smith yes yeah, so Ben Smith, it's Semaphore, the new outlet um, 
which is itself a little bit plagued by uh, by controversy right now because they took a bunch of money from Sam Bankman-Fried, but that's not something we're talking about today. Anyway, Ben Smith, formerly of the New York Times, uh, wrote this piece, uh, sort of a long overdue follow-up on the cancellation, the me-tooing of Juno Diaz. Um, Juno Diaz, do we need to mention who he is? Dominican-American, Pulitzer-winning writer, um, really like one of the most, at least prior to his cancellation, um, like award-winning, important, acclaimed literary voices of the contemporary American canon. And, um, you know, and a Dominican guy, which was important. I don't know if anybody has read uh, The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, but that's a really good book. Anyway, so Diaz was canceled, yeah, as we mentioned, over this forcible kiss and also allegations um, that followed, as as so often happens with these things where, you know, one person says, I had this experience, and then a bunch of folks come out of the woodwork and say, hashtag me too. He was also alleged to have shouted in the face of a woman, Monica Byrne, at a dinner party, and which she described as a, quote, verbal sexual assault which is not a thing, but whatever. Um, and also um, the writer Carmen Maria Machado or Machado, I never know how to pronounce it. Um, Machado, do you think? Because she's Spanish? I don't know. All right. Well, well we're just going to assume. Um, she said that he like berated her, went on like a, a misogynistic tirade against her at a public event when uh, he was doing a Q&A for some literary something or other. And she asked him a question that I guess maybe was like more of a comment than a question. And he got angry and like screamed at her was what she said. OK, so at the time, it was already kind of like because of the nature of the allegations, it was already iffy. Also, there was an audio recording in existence of this exchange that he had with Machado. So you could listen to what was supposedly this misogynistic tirade in which he like screamed and yelled at her and hear that, you know, he might have been like slightly exasperated, but it just did not sound as described. So, yeah, as Ben Smith notes in this piece, he sort of disappeared from the landscape. He offered to resign. I would imagine that he was told to do this or, you know, advised to do this by people close to him because that was sort of what you were supposed to do if you were accused of a Me Too related offense. Um, meanwhile, the Pulitzer board hired an outside law firm to investigate the allegations. They determined that they were without merit. So he was not, Diaz was not fully canceled. Um, nevertheless, what's revealed in this piece is that he basically sank into a deep depression, became very isolated and stopped writing as a result of this. He has not written a word of fiction in four years, which is tragic. Um, but the reason I think like the bombshell central to this piece is the fact that this forcible kiss was actually on the cheek, which nobody seemed to have imagined at the time. Right. I mean, I feel like we did as a sort of news item, I feel like the fact that it was a kiss on the cheek and had been in some sort of context where there were a lot of people around and they were all kissing on the cheek. I feel like that it was not the first time I had heard that. I know that Katie Herzog has mentioned this on Blocked and Reported a couple of times. Okay. Okay. So maybe that's where that would, that would make sense that that would be where we had heard this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. A cheek kiss. So do you want to get into the whole uh, cheek kiss gate from Twitter and where, where you... <laughs> You put yourself out there, and I'm going to put myself out there in agreement um, that a forcible cheek kiss 
is that a thing in a meaning in, in this context of consent? Now, it can be annoying to have somebody kiss you on the cheek when you don't want it. But is that and I'm talking pre COVID, right? Because I think that COVID adds a whole different, you know, like context, although we, we will that that's we are putting the pin in that and we will return. But for simplicity's sake, pre COVID, was a cheek kiss a consent violation? Is that even plausible? What do you think? I mean, I don't think so. I think that though there's a couple of things happening here. One is this insistence, and it's it's I think increasingly prevalent on conflating all physical touch, all physical interaction with sex in some way, which is you know when you start introducing notions of consent. Um, I think that that's like a flattening of the entire diverse landscape of physical intimacy, including like the casual physical intimacy of, say, you know, a standard greeting kiss on the cheek into something that's like nefarious and and kind of ugly. Like, I don't like the idea that physical interactions between two people can only occur in the context of something sexual, that there's no such thing as just like, you know, hugging somebody platonically um, or like, you know, having your cheek kissed platonically or having your hair washed platonically. I mean, it's kind of possible to imagine like an end game here <laughs> where the only time that people are in physical contact is either because they're doing something sexual consensually or because they've paid to be touched by like a masseuse or, you know, the person who's like shampooing their hair. Or a sex worker. I'm sorry, a sex worker? Yes. Yeah. Right. It's But it's bleak. It's like it's either all sexual or all transactional or both. But it's also or or it's not bleak and it's suddenly made the World Cup a lot more <laughs> interesting. Wait, what happened at the World Cup? Men bumping into one another. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing particular. I was just thinking about how when they all line up, um, you know, for a direct kick, they all place their hands over their yeah. crotch, um, yeah. lest they be non-consensually <laughs> kissed by the soccer ball. Exactly. In the skirtle area. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think, yeah, it's it's bleak and it's also just sort of inaccurate to human experience, it just as a, on a descriptive level. So aside from even the sort of prescriptive aspect of what sort of, soci what sort of society do we want to be living in? It's like, what sort of society do we live in? And how would a, a reasonable person interpret being kissed on the cheek when they don't want to be? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I will say that like, the sort of consent norms in academia are probably and have probably been sort of more skittish for longer than elsewhere. So I I wouldn't be surprised if somebody had a kind of oversized reaction to being kissed on the cheek in that type of setting. Like that doesn't really surprise me. But at the same time, like creative writing, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that it would be. Yeah, it's sort of like, are we talking about academia? Or are we talking about bohemia? Right. Ooh. Well, is there even snow bohemia? Well, I think, you know, that's maybe part of the problem. Um, and, you know, this puts me in mind not just of the sort of elimination of like or the narrowing of acceptable behavioral standards um, in the literary world, but also in places where like there's been kind of a notoriously freewheeling like. Um, I don't want to say chauvinistic, but like body raunchy culture, places like the restaurant industry, you know. 
where in light of the Me Too movement, we suddenly had to be like, well, is it okay that these cultures exist? Um, and, you know, I think, like, personally, I really prefer a diversity of ways of being. I like the idea that there are places, professions, whatever, where you you know, where people are a little rowdier, you know, where personalities that are sort of like more expressive and gregarious and, you know, handsier, for lack of a better word, can find like a comfortable expression. And it doesn't have to be across the board, like, you know, you can have different standards for different spaces. But the idea that we should standardize, and this was actually something that was said to me in response to my tweets about the cheek kissing thing. So what I said about the cheek kissing thing on Twitter was so Thomas Chatterton Williams, the writer of whom I am a fan, um, said an unwanted kiss on the cheek is not okay. Um, I think that that's something that a guy talking about this kind of has to say. Um, I don't think that a man can really as freely express right. the sentence yeah. that I expressed. Um, but sticking my neck out, what I said was a kiss on the cheek is a minor annoyance and a hell of a lot closer to okay than it is to not okay. And then, you know, talked about how like different communication styles culturally or in terms of family background, just in terms of how you're kind of like what kind of a constitution you have, what kind of a disposition you have, that like you're going to end up with a diversity of ways for people to say hello and goodbye to each other. And, you know, you have to either cultivate like tolerance for this or if it's really aggravating to you to like find a way to deal graciously with it in the moment. Um, the response that I got to this that I wanted to talk about was somebody who said, this is uh, at nil class error. I don't know who this person is, just some random Twitter entity says, pst, like pst. It's also <laughs> fine not to want any intrusions into one space. And that should be, in fact, the standard. That I do not think, in fact, should be the standard. And I think there is something about this idea that we should now like recalibrate society writ large to the preferences of the people who don't want anything to do with other human beings, like don't like them, don't trust them, don't want to talk to them, don't want to touch them, don't want to be around them. Um, and this does tie into the COVID thing, which we may be getting into a little too early. No, but no, I don't think it's too early. I think this is right. I think, I think we can hop around a little here. And I think that COVID is crucial to this because I think there is a certain, you know, there are certain people who just want that society and COVID has brought about a convenient reason to have that society. Now, I don't think that being squeamish actually meaningfully does a whole lot to prevent the spread of an extremely contagious disease that unless you really, really, truly are in some sort of bubble, you're being exposed to all the time. Um, but I think just sort of in terms of principles and what would be a good, what would be the ideal world to live in, the people who think the ideal world is to be sort of alone as much as possible now have kind of as they feel it, the science on their side, which, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, which has also acquired this like moral vector, right? It's like, it's like, this is not only the scientifically proven best way to live, it's also morally superior, because in isolating myself from other people completely, and, you know, demanding that they never touch me, and I never be forced to touch them. Um, I'm just showing how much I care. 
I care so much about other people that I never want to see or touch them again. Yeah. And then the problem is that this type of outlook seems more prevalent than it is because lo and behold, the people who feel this way are posting, right? Because what, mm -hmm. what else are they going to be doing? It's true. It's they're they're all inside. They're all, you know, safely ensconced behind their intermediary of a screen through which they are doing everything. And actually, this brings me to, I think, a broader issue um, in terms of like how we have started to recalibrate society for better or for worse. And like, spoiler alert, I think it's probably for worse. Um, this idea of frictionlessness. We have gotten to the point where like people have gotten so used to the idea that they can eliminate friction from their lives and like, and have very effectively eliminated a lot of it, you know, like anything that makes you, I like, I always, I always use the example of um, ordering a pizza on the internet. You know, we don't mm -hmm. want to call to order the pizza because that's anxiety inducing. So we order it on the internet and the friction is gone. You do that enough. And what you end up doing is making yourself so unused to like the ordinary friction, discomfort, whatever you want to call it, of coexisting on a planet with 8 billion other people, that any tiny fleeting moment of irritation or discomfort feels like a tragedy. Like, you know, that you've, you've basically made yourself so sensitive that like you can't tolerate just like the basic experience of being alive in the world with other people. Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've noticed this in myself. So when I normally, I, I'm a city dweller, I normally take public tra public transit, but I spent a few years um, non-city dwelling and driving, and my own just sort of sense of what was somebody up in my personal space was different. You know what I mean? So I think some of this is going to be always just kind of subjective and depends on, you know, how somebody's life is at a particular time. You know what I mean? So like I see... But I think what's happening now is like, yeah, on a societal level, in, and that's different than just like the level of commuting on a subway versus, you know, driving like this is like when it's all of society. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that uh, like I think certain things are just kind of stuck, like playdates are like slowly trickling back for small children. But I think it's still this like really, we can go into one another's houses thing, mm -hmm. you know, meanwhile, like, everybody is always sick from because they're all in school. I'm just rambling. But the point is, I think that something has happened where in person, like something really will be screwed up in society with once in person human interaction is fraught, because there were already diseases immunocompromised people were already baseline at risk in germ-filled situations. It's not new entirely, right? Like, mm -hmm. No, it's not new at all. I think that, like, I, I just wonder, like, what's going to happen for the people who don't already have partners, who don't already have, you know, friends or whatever. It just seems so, like, there just seems to be some percentage of pretty young people who are just posting about how they can't believe that other people are you know, this, even this many years and, you know, occasionally interacting with one another. And it's like, what else? This is life. Then it's done. And then are you going to have spent it all in your room? Like, I, don't I know. sort of wonder, like, I mean, the thing, I guess the thing that is also not new is there have always been shut-ins, right? It's yes. just that we didn't see them 
um, because they were shut in. But now they're shut in with an internet connection through which they can brush their shut in-ness to the world. And so we're all aware of them. And I think maybe that seems like, makes them seem like they're a growing contingent when in fact they're just a visible contingent in a way they weren't before. Visible and like you were saying, armed with the sense of their own sort of superiority. Whereas I think before they just, I've had neighbors in different places I've lived who have been shut-ins and they just, you know, but like when you would see them occasionally, they they would actually be kind of fine, you know, or like, I think I've even had, I can think off the top of my head of three different times I've had a neighbor who was a shut-in and it's like always for different reasons, you know, but like they weren't, they didn't seem to think that they were better or worse for that. It was just kind of how it was. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's strange. I think COVID definitely impacted this in ways that we're going to probably see the fallout from for a while. On the other hand, I don't think ultimately that any project to like stigmatize the basic human desire to connect with other people, to be with other people and to touch other people is going to be successful because it just goes against so much of what's hardwired in us. But at the same time, as we're trying to kind of like muddle our way through this moment in which people are attempting to do that I think a lot of harm can be caused and um, that makes me want to kind of return maybe closer to the topic of Juno Diaz um, and talk about this thing about like cheek kissing and the nature of experiencing a minor annoyance like that but that you know instead is, is played as a trauma because the thing that's happened is like On the one hand, we have kind of eliminated the idea of tolerable friction and replaced it with trauma. So now it's like to experience friction means, you know, that's a trauma. It's a violation. It means you've been harmed in some way. And we've also introduced the notion that if you've been harmed, it needs a public airing. You know, you're going to take it to the Internet and you're going to litigate it in the public square. There's got to be a there's got to be a trial, right? I see that as so incredibly insidious. Um, And it's like, so bringing it really fully back to Juno Diaz. So there are these charges against him that he, you know, that he shouted in a woman's face at a dinner party, that he went on this tirade against uh, Carmen Maria Machado. Also that he, also that he was um, not a good boyfriend. Oh, is that? That's one of the, the charges. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I mean, and the, yeah, and then there's the, you know, that he, um, that he forcibly kissed, cheek kissed this woman. Okay. So like, I think there's a conversation to be had about whether these are even reasonable interpretations of his behavior. People who are at this dinner party where he allegedly screamed in this woman's face, they all say they don't remember it that way. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, And then there's the recording, you know, where you can hear like objectively what is being described as having happened is not the same thing as what happened. But let's just say like arguendo, for whatever reason, these women nevertheless were genuinely affronted by what happened. Maybe they're super duper sensitive or maybe like they're just a bad match, like the way they are personality wise is a bad match with the way Juno Diaz is personality wise, which is a very normal human thing. Like everybody is grading to somebody, right? I still think that the way to deal with this ideally is either in the moment 
you say something, you decide it's important enough that you're annoyed enough to say something and to, to say like, hey, you know, would you would you lower your voice? Would you dial it back? Like, would you take a step away from me? Or like, would you not kiss me on the cheek? I don't like that. Or alternately, decide that it's not worth saying something and just like sit through it. And then you go home at the end of the night and you tell your, you know, partner or whatever, like, hey, Juno Diaz is a real asshole. And like, and that's how you cope. And that's how we used to cope. And the thing that really freaks me out and that I think is kind of like genuinely terrifying is this idea that we're now living in a world where if you achieve a certain level of success and visibility to the point where people stand to gain clout by taking you down, that you have to worry that anybody who was ever annoyed by you for any reason is going to come out of the woodwork years later and call you a predator. And that's going to be taken seriously. So I think it's confusing and I'm trying, oh, there's so many different threads here and um, I'm trying to figure out how to tie them together. So I think there's still, we are also at the same time living in the world of that we've always lived in of power and influence where if somebody powerful and influential does something that annoys you, and you don't want to burn a bridge, and you're a reasonable person, you probably are not going to post about it. And I think there's a whole lot of not posting about it that continues to go on. And I think that the calculus that clout would be more valuable than your own reputation is not one that everybody determines. I think, but there are, like, I just want to try to get like a picture of the sort of like an accurate picture of the sort of unmeasurable landscape. But does that make any sense? Like, what I'm saying about, like, I want to be clear on, like, what I think the power balances are here in general, not with him particularly, but just in general in society that, like, I don't think that because of the Me Too movement, it's now the case that if somebody feels like a powerful man has been annoying to them, their first move will probably be to post about it for clout. Like, I think we still live in the world of powerful people being awful and getting away with it as the default. But I think there's a certain percentage of people who do the thing you're saying about the cl- for the clout. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that maybe the thing is that the people who get taken down, I, I agree with you, are generally not powerful and also not awful. You know, instead, right, it's right. like, I suffered a minor inconvenience, like I suffered minor friction with this person who I have accurately assessed is a big enough deal for it to be advantageous to me to like announce that they're terrible um, and, and, you know, and ride that to like a certain level of visibility myself, but they're not powerful enough to actually enact consequences. Exactly. So the, there's the, you know, a certain number of people who obviously, yeah, are kind of like above accountability because they've amassed so much power but that's not who gets targeted um no no well so i was wondering about the so you know the writer alex perez and his kind of oh yes default take on things about like that it's the bourgeois brooklyn white ladies with their no, hate no home here tote bags or whatever i feel like there's something going on in the conversation that's right and that's wrong in this critique that's like there's something that I worry like with this critique that it just suddenly becomes like actually men are the real like it's sort of like this reclamation of the macho writer which I feel like 
it's certainly, I mean, I don't think there, there should be like, like what you were saying about different cultures. I think, you know, have some macho writers, have some not macho writers, but like there is something about a kind of homogeneous literary community as it were, which seems to like, as far as I can tell, not have a tremendous overlap with who's actually writing anything. It seems to just be some kind of social media click. I don't really know. I think that's not quite true. I think, you know, there, this is a category of... Um, was it in literary fiction that it's like? I have no idea. Yes. I have no idea. Yeah, it's people who publish literary fiction, who, you know, who graduate from MFA programs, who publish literary fiction with the same group of, like, small, you know, independent but prestigious presses. And, yeah, you know, th- they're in that environment. The idea of, quote-unquote, literary citizenship, which is something that Megan Dahm has written about. Right. Like, that's... That's prevalent and increasingly prevalent. And what it means in those spaces is that different ways of being are basically stigmatized. There's kind of only one way mm-hmm. to be. But are men in are and more to the point, macho men interested in reading novels? And were they ever in great numbers interested in reading novels? Because I think some of this just is like the market and about like who's buying these books to begin with? Well, I think the question is, you know, it's not really about who's reading. It's about who's telling stories and who are we reading stories about? I mean, I think the people who read fiction, who read novels, that's always been a a strongly female demographic. Like that's been mainly women. But women don't only want to read stories about women, or right. women like them, um, you know, so. Sure. I just mean in terms of who works in publishing, that I think some of this has to do with who's drawn to that type of career. And the same, like, if you're going to make, not you, Kat, but like, if one is going to make the argument that there are more men in whichever specific STEM area because they gravitated to that, you know, maybe that's how publishing kind of also, I am rambling. But yeah. I don't know. I, I I guess I just wonder like what the takeaway is from this Juno Diaz story, because obviously part of it, I think we agree is it's not assault to be kissed on the cheek, even if you don't like it in the moment. Um, that's not a sexual assault. And that's, yeah, I guess, I guess what I'm wondering is just like this idea of there not being redemption. Like, is that art? So is here's one question I have. Is the semaphore article redemption? Is that it? I mean, no, because it's, you know, all all the Semaphore article does basically is describe how he vanished from the landscape and how difficult it is for him. And I mean, the article itself maybe doesn't even describe this so much as it illustrates it in the response that it garnered, how difficult it is for him to come back. Um, You know, there is a narrative out there now that Juno Diaz is a sexual predator, like a serial sexual predator. This is the, the language that comes up now when you mention his name. And this is in response to, again, allegations that he like was a bad dinner party guest, um, that he was argumentative right. with a reader and that he kissed a woman on the cheek. But you don't think that a big article that. getting a lot of attention sort of correcting the record. I, I Like, I don't know. I don't really have an answer to this, but I'm just wondering how much that helps, whether it, like, there are two things, right? There's sort of, is it helping his reputation and is it helping him personally? And he, him personally, this seems like the bleak part of the story is he, him personally, that might just be 
his life now. He may just be, you know, so traumatized by this experience that, you know, that he suffers, that potential readers of his unwritten work suffer, you know, like that's, I think that that's, that's the bleak part. I guess I wonder though, in terms of the culture at large, starting to question this idea that that there's this whisper network that should be believed in all things might be shifting. Like that's where I see a hint of optimism, not for him personally, not for his, you know, never to be written works, (laughs) but in terms of just like, you still see people on Twitter saying like, we all know that he's bad news, but like, we're not going to say why. (laughs) And like, I just wonder if people like that are taken less seriously than they were a few years ago. I don't know. I mean, I think that the people who say stuff like that tend to retain outsized influence in, you know, the arts, um, you know, basically all the places where culture is being produced and that's its own issue. Um, I, I guess, yeah, that, you know, the fact that even that this article was written um, and it, it includes the information that a version of this article was attempted several times prior to this by people at other publications and it got spiked every time because of the fears that it would be seen as like you know rape apologia or whatever even though again Juno Diaz has not been accused of rape um you know there there's something about that that suggests like okay maybe yeah the tide is turning I suppose that you know it's possible to see this as akin to whatever moment happened like in the wake of McCarthyism where people looked around and said, oh, maybe we shouldn't be like chasing people out of public life because somebody said they were a communist. Like maybe we should stop doing that and and start being a little more reasonable. Um, I think it kind of remains to be seen whether we're at that point, because unlike McCarthyism, like there's this whole other set of machinery in place, you know, the the sort of trial by social media that's now become a standard way for dealing with any interpersonal disappointments or like complaints, um, you know, to dismantle that is going to be very difficult to like destandardize that is going to be very difficult. But yeah, I mean, just in terms of like, who's getting to tell stories, um, you know, whether we maybe are taking a step back from this kind of like instant rush to defenestry anybody who's been accused of doing a bad thing. Sure, you know, maybe there's reason to be optimistic. I like the idea that we should be optimistic. I think that's what I'm I'm hinging on. Although I'm feeling pessimistic about something else. And oh, what's that? Well, so that's another um item that I may have put into our outline that we had not discussed but yeah you kind of surprised me with it I surprised (laughs) I I I non-consensually put something into our plan for today's app yes I should say you surprised me with it insofar as it's ever surprising for you to mention Seinfeld um which is to say like this was maybe half a surprise (laughs) okay I have skimmed an article in the New Yorker I'm keeping the tab open because I don't subscribe to The New Yorker and I'm going to be paywalled out of it if I don't. I saw this article via the pocket function of Firefox. That's where it was recommended to me. You know, really sophisticated stuff here. Um, It's cultural comment. I finally watched Seinfeld. Is the headline subhead. The show didn't appeal to me when it first aired, mostly because I harbored a long simmering antagonism toward mainstream America by Saeed Sairafizadeh a writer who is also an actor. Okay. And it's like, okay, 
really? Are we still like, I just, I couldn't believe this article keeps being written. Do you know that Seinfeld, Kat, did you know that Seinfeld was a little problematic? I thought that was the whole point. And that they, the, it was not always kind towards immigrants. The characters who were immigrants were not portrayed in a way that's respectful. Just out, out of curiosity, was Seinfeld kind to anyone? Like, was anybody portrayed in a flattering way on this show? Uh, well, let's see. There were, I mean, given the people it was most centrally about, although that's never mentioned in this piece, unless I skimmed too quickly, but Jews do not come across great in Seinfeld, which is a show about Jews. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with nobody comes across great in Seinfeld and that that's not really the point of Seinfeld and kind of, it's like the opposite of the point of Seinfeld. Um, I guess I just, I I wonder, like when I read something like this, I just want to be like, well, you do Seinfeld, you make Seinfeld and you do it better. Like, I don't know. I just feel like there's something about like, like I, I think I've started to kind of like figure out why I find this sort of this is problematic critique so irritating. And I have been thinking about this for years, writing about this for years. But I think it is just partly like, it just doesn't leave room for like, somebody creates or a group of people created something amazing. It was flawed. It was a product of its time. It was subjective, it, you know, whatever. But it was still something special. And I feel like that this is problematic sort of nitpick just like you can't have any creativity if that's the only way you know because everything's going to be problematic and everybody's the privileged party versus somebody else you know and whatever the author of this essay might create would be offensive to somebody else you know like Mm -hmm. I mean that's part of it but then there's also the Seinfeld specific thing which is that this was you know (laughs) kind of somewhat groundbreaking show for American Jews. And then this is all this article is like as if it's just about interchangeable white Americans, which it's not. That's just inaccurate. And um yeah, anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to in a very narrow way like defend the existence of this article. Um because what I do think is like at least interesting about it and valid about it is the idea that a you know a person with no connection to the show um, and no real connection to the U.S. or like at least a complicated relationship with the U.S. and with its culture could come to this artifact of 1990s television and 1990s American culture that was yes you know significant in in certain ways and problematic in certain ways and a triumph in certain ways and in coming to this can personally turn it into a vehicle for his own like life trajectory his experience his disappointments um and you know the fact that he decided is it a he it is a he right um decided so. to to approach this through a sort of um, a resentful lens is, you know, maybe unfortunate. Um, you know, we can feel that he's missing the point and the joy uh, that that was Seinfeld. But I don't know. I feel like, you know, 
he's at least you know entitled to his to to watch the show however he wants to and to write about it however he wants to where stuff like this you know i mean this type of criticism i don't necessarily find it that interesting but where i find it truly abrasive and where i think that it does cross a line is when the person uses this type of analysis as a vehicle not for kind of exploring their own relationship with american culture like through the lens of this one show but where they start to argue that the show itself shouldn't exist you know that it's like it's it caused some harm to them you know and to other people like them to marginalized communities at large and so you know it should be eliminated um you know we should only ever view it through the lens of like, look how bad this was. I can't believe we enjoyed it. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, more voices, the more voices, the better. People should be allowed to say whatever they want. And I certainly don't think that there's any, I don't think everybody has to like the same television shows. Like I find Friends abhorrent. Like I, it is aesthetically like my least favorite thing. I don't have like a political thought about Friends. I just don't like it. Is that disrespectful to the people who created this amazing show? Maybe. But I guess, I don't know. Maybe this does come down again to this idea of like flattening, but this idea that, that you can take something like the Seinfeld, which is just like very complex and kind of an interesting thing and turn it into like this kind of superficial 1990s. I don't know. There's just something about this I find very frustrating where, oh, like, it's also just, it's not new. Like, of course, these things were offensive for the reasons that named, but like this just, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a new observation to me. I guess, you know, I think that this is actually, this piece, I, which I haven't spent a lot of time with, so, you know, grain of salt, but I do see it as, in some ways, like, the embodiment of a successful personal essay that uses a work of art or TV show, a pop cultural moment as an entry point. Um, so this is the last, from the second to last paragraph, this is like, you know, sort of the, the denouement of this piece. He's described at length, you know, his resentment um, of the show, of the way he feels it portrays immigrant characters, the way he feels that this reflects things that are disappointing, unflattering, what have you, about his own experience as an immigrant in America. Um, but he comes to the end of the show and he says, now I was in, ex in an accepting mood. I was in a forgiving mood. I was in a Pax Americana mood. Perhaps this is one of the benefits of cognitive dissonance. Besides, it would have taken a tremendous amount of energy, mental and spiritual, for me to dismiss characters with whom I had just spent 180 episodes together. I had always been so good at writing off people, whatever the price, and I had paid for it with a certain self-perpetuating isolation. I like that. I like this moment of turning this sort of like savage mirror on yourself and saying like, okay, you know, here's, here are my flaws. Um, and being in a forgiving mood toward this thing that you've been kind of, um, you know, nitpicking for many, many paragraphs. So I think, you know, and in doing that, I, I think that that's the moment at which the essay becomes a success and, and something slightly more than just like a, this is problematic lament. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a New Yorker essay, right? So it has layers to it and there's insight. Yeah, but the New Yorker, I mean, not every essay about, I mean, some of the stuff that was written in the New Yorker about, for instance, the movie Joker, like was absolutely preposterous sure I mean, just, but like, i guess i just bad. mean like this i think for something on seinfeld 
today mm -hmm. to be published in the New Yorker, there would need to be like a little bit more heft to it than a kind of like BuzzFeed checklist of 10 times or 50 times Seinfeld was offensive. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know. I just... It's okay that you didn't like the essay. Is it? <laughs> is it? Because yeah. I'm going to have to send my pitch to the New Yorker of why I didn't like this essay. Well, I guess I, I think I am going to come back to the sort of like the Jewish angle here. And maybe I will have to rant about this for something at work sometime. Because obviously culture is relative. People are well within their rights to perceive of Seinfeld as being about a bunch of white Americans, which it also is. That is also true. But if you actually want, like it is and it isn't, I don't know. And I think that there's something, there's something where the show intentionally kind of obfuscates this and, you know, having Elaine be the shiksa is kind of one area and just like not spelling out whether George is supposed to be Jewish or not when like, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, I think there's something about this interpretation of it that I just find I mean, it's like, yeah, it's not that it isn't somebody's right to interpret it like that. It is. It just, it's very odd for me to see it like this because it just, I don't know if this is a rant. It's maybe just an observation. I think that's fair. You've talked me down from my ledge. I think I have <laughs> quibbles with the essay, but I'm not going to. Um, Track the writer down and forcibly kiss him on the cheek. No, I'll send Bizu to do it instead. <laughs> <laughs> Variation on a hitman. You send your poodle to kiss your enemies to death to slobber on anybody whose essay i found a little bit hmm which you know we always like to talk about accountability and like proper accountability you know the punishment fitting the crime i think that this is a perfect example of like judicial restraint yeah or extrajudicial <laughs> judicial <laughs> <laughs> i got nothing that's this has been very judicial this has been Feminine Chaos. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to Feminine Chaos on Substack, where for $5 a month, you can get extra perks, including access to a community of like-minded chaos lovers, uh, open threads where you can comment and suggest topic ideas, and also two premium episodes per month that are just for our paying subscribers. Please join us there. And that's it. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye.